You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. NIH Director Francis Collins joins the Post to discuss the latest updates on coronavirus treatment and how public health officials are combating skepticism and educating the public about the vaccines. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steedsell as a senior writer at the Washington Post. This morning, it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Francis Collins. He's the director of the National Institutes of Health, and he's also Dr. Anthony Fauci's boss. A very warm welcome to you this morning, Dr. Collins. Wonderful to be with you. Yeah, everybody, we have Francis and Francis this morning. That doesn't happen very <laughs> often, but delighted to be able to join Washington Post Live and talk about where we are with COVID-19. Well, let's start with the vaccines. Thank you very much. Um, we have had this enormous historic scientific achievement of bringing vaccines, two vaccines already, um, to the public. Um, but we have not met the goal of inoculating 20 million people by the end of 2020. What went wrong? Was this overpromising, or have we got real systemic problems going ahead that we need to worry about? Well, the next couple of weeks are going to be really critical to see uh, how we can get this distribution system up and going more smoothly. Certainly, that has had a rocky beginning, but I'm not totally surprised by that when you consider that it's only been three weeks uh, since these approvals by the FDA uh, were issued. We had this remarkable plan uh, that Warp Speed had put in place to have doses ready to go the very next day after the FDA approval. But that's a lot of logistics, uh, shipping the samples out to the states. Every state had to have a plan about how they're going to do the distribution. And it's in the middle of the holidays. So maybe we shouldn't be too shocked that it didn't just go like clockwork. If you look at CDC's site uh, right now, their COVID tracking site, you'll see 17 million doses have been distributed, but only about 4.8 million, as far as we know, have been injected. There's probably about a three-day delay in getting that result back. So things are starting to pick up. And let's just watch and see what happens over the next couple of weeks. I think we ought to be able to get in a place where maybe a million injections are happening every day. That would be a good sort of benchmark to reach. And every state is, I think, learning from every other state about how to do this. Everybody's on this growth learning curve process. And let's all be a little patient and not conclude that we've got a major challenge that's been not met yet until we have a little bit more time to see how it goes. Well, there have been instant reactions by some people that we should be going to, these were vaccines that obviously were, were approved for two doses, either three or four weeks apart. But people are now saying maybe we should get one dose out as widely as possible. The British are experimenting with mix and match. Where are we with the actual science of knowing how to do this properly, how to continue, and whether those recommendations may change as we go ahead? Well, that's a really good question. Recognize the two vaccines that have been authorized for emergency use in the US, Pfizer and Moderna, had that a determination made on the basis of rigorous phase three trials involving at least 30,000 participants, and where it was a two-dose regimen for Pfizer, 21 days between first and second dose, for Moderna, 28 days. They didn't throw somebody out who showed up a week late uh, for their second dose, but most people were pretty close to hitting that interval. And that's how we know that these vaccines are 94, 95% effective, which is pretty breathtaking, by the way, to be able to say that. As soon as you start tinkering uh, with the, uh, the timing of the doses 
or even considering as the Brits are, maybe you don't have to use the same vaccine for the first and the second dose, then you're outside of the scientific data and you're potentially putting people at risk of not getting a good outcome. So if you saw FDA's comments yesterday, which I would align myself with, let's be really careful here. Let's basically build our vaccination program on the actual evidence that we have and not start making stuff up, even though it might seem like it would be a way to get people immunized more quickly. We want them to be immunized effectively. By the way, right now, the problem doesn't seem to be that we have a shortage of doses. We seem to have a shortage of delivery of those doses into arms. So let's focus on that problem. And if we get to the point where we really are short of vaccine doses, we could begin to talk about whether there are some creative ways without getting outside the science uh, to get more people started into this immunization plan, which we really want to get to as many people as quickly as possible. Well, let's talk about that delivery process. How many people do we need to vaccinate every day? And there have been changing estimates that I've read of the number of people we need to vaccinate, the percentage of the population we need to vaccinate in order to reach herd immunity. Those numbers seem to be going up. Again, what does the science tell us on both those things? Well, let's be clear. Herd immunity requires the majority of a population to be immune. Is the majority 80%? Is it 85%? I don't know that we have a precise answer to that, but it's a big fraction to be sure. And that really is what we ought to try to achieve as soon as we can get there in this country. Because at that point, the virus starts to lose its grip on us and basically has a hard time propagating. And we could begin to imagine putting COVID-19 into the rearview mirror. So I would say, let's go for 80, 85%. That ought to be sufficient to achieve that herd immunity. That's a lot of people. We have 330 million people in the country. So we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 million of those getting immunized sometime in the coming months. The doses that we have from Pfizer and Moderna should make it possible for something like 100 to 120 million people to have received at least their first dose by the end of March. And then beyond that into April, May, and June, as perhaps the opportunities for greater manufacturing capacity get better, uh, we should be able to get to that point by the sort of June, July period. But everybody needs to recognize that's not tomorrow. <laughs> that's not February. And meanwhile, we have a lot of hard work to do to try to prevent the really bad things that are happening here in January with this virus, which is running really quite wildly across the country and causing a great deal of misery. So. This is not the time for people to relax and say, well, the vaccine's here. It's a time to double down on all those other things and get the vaccines distributed as fast as we can. So do you see the opening of mass vaccine clinics and in coming months? I mean, how do we get this huge number of people through the actual process of getting a needle in their arms? Well, initially, as you know, the states uh, all have a plan about how to distribute the vaccines that they're getting shipped. And those are, of course, first going to nursing homes and other residential facilities with very high-risk people and to healthcare providers. But then very quickly, moving into other high-risk groups, uh, such as the elderly, essential workers, every state has a way of approaching this. But pretty soon, uh, this is going to fall into the category where a lot of the immunizations are going to be done through pharmacies because everybody has a pharmacy, or most people do, uh, that they're familiar with and can get to. And that will be an efficient way once we get into a broader immunization of the population to be able to implement this. Those are many steps that are coming. They've been pretty carefully thought through by the warp speed planners. And I think once we get sort of past uh, this initial effort of trying to get all these 
moving parts to work together, uh, there's a pretty clear pathway to getting to where we need to be by the summer. Yes, but should the federal government be handing off to the states like this and expecting 50 different plans, some states better organized than others, some with better funding than others, and all actually very much in need of funding for plans that they've been trying to put out since last October? What's the federal government's role here? Well, yes, this this is a reflection of the nature of our uh, country and the fact that it is a sort of a federalism model. The initial sense was that states were in the best position to know how to actually get vaccines delivered uh, to those at highest risk. Obviously, that has had some bumps. I will tell you there's now a pretty good opportunity for states to learn from each other best practices, and that might be missed if we were trying to do this completely in a top-down fashion. Uh, but yeah, you could argue one way or the other about what might have been a better method. Basically, the way our country works, uh, the states have a critical role in public health, and we need them to be doing that. They are going to be getting more money in the very near future to help with vaccine distribution uh, since that was approved as part of the Congress's most recent decision about supplementary funding for COVID-19. That certainly includes money for testing and money for vaccine distribution in the states, which they very much are happy to see. But I want to really follow up on this question of real-time real learning between the states because I was speaking actually yesterday to some epidemiologists who were wondering whether there was really time for that to happen or any organized means of it happening. Do you have specific examples of states or local health departments learning from one another and passing on real-time information? There are weekly conference calls with the governors of all 50 states, and the focus has been very much in the last couple of weeks about distribution and which states have been able to achieve a much higher percentage of vaccine doses being distributed and injected into people's arms. And the variation there is pretty significant. And I think the governors that have done well are being asked a lot of questions by the governors that are having more trouble. You know, look at the data again in this CDC website. There's a map there and you can sort of see who are, you know, the people who should be getting the gold star and the people who are still struggling. Interestingly, what state do you think has had the highest percentage of success in administering vaccines to people in nursing homes? It's West Virginia. Okay, West go Virginia. West Virginia. They figured out how to do something. So everybody wants to know how they did that. That's a good opportunity. And I don't think that's a terribly long drawn out process of understanding exactly what systems West Virginia put in place to achieve this. Uh, it's good map to look at. And if you're a governor looking at that map, you want your state to look good. Right. You referred a, a couple of minutes ago to the challenges this virus keeps throwing in our way. And of course, one of the recent one is these uh, mutations um, that we've seen both in South Africa and, and Britain and now here, the British variant. Um, We've heard about how that may lead to another surge, but tell us a little about the science of these viruses. If there's more virus out there, if there's more transmission, could there be further mutations that actually lead to a form of this virus that is resistant to the PCR tests and to the vaccines? Well, this is an RNA virus, and we know that RNA viruses do change over time. When they're copying their instruction book, their RNA genome, uh, they will make a misspelling in a place or two. Most of the time, those are deleterious, but occasionally that might be a change that gives that virus a bit of a selective advantage. And that's what we are seeing, it seems, in the UK and also in South Africa where we have new spellings of the virus uh, that seem to be able to outcompete 
the other viruses in the population and therefore emerge rather quickly and dominate what's happening, as you will now see in the UK, where this new variant uh, has become from almost not known about in September to now dominating most of the cases. We have, by the way, now seen that same UK variant in the US in at least five states. And I would be surprised if that number doesn't grow pretty rapidly. Uh, people travel around, this should not be a surprise. That does seem to be a virus that has about a 70% higher ability to transmit from one person to the next. And you can see how therefore it has been very successful in dominating uh, what's happening in the UK. And we should think about where that's gonna take us in the US as well. Fortunately, it doesn't seem to be more severe for people who get infected, but it just means there's more risk of more people getting infected. And we already have such an overloaded system in hospitals that we should worry about this. Likewise, the South African variant seems to have some of those same properties. So far, there does not seem to be any reason to believe that these variants uh, would be those that people vaccinated would not be able to resist. So it would not expect that these are so different that the vaccine wouldn't work. And they don't seem to be sufficiently different that the therapeutics, these monoclonal antibodies, wouldn't work against them, although real experiments are underway right now to make sure that that's the case. Is there a possibility downstream that a virus would emerge that is so different that the vaccine would no longer offer protection? Uh, that would be quite a large change indeed. Uh, right now, we don't see anything of that sort. But we need a careful monitoring system to watch for that. And that is one of the things we're working on right now with the CDC and with industry to try to be sure that when one of these new variants arrives is that we recognize it and we quickly test it to see if it's one to really worry about. So Again, the CDC is not a surprise. This is, this is evolution in action. Right. The CDC has been playing catch up a little bit, I think, on sequencing, which has been further ahead in some other countries. Where does that stand now? Are we going to be able to be sure that we aren't having mutations that uh, are spreading without us being aware of them? CDC is now implementing a more systematic approach uh, to regular sequencing of viruses that are being found in all the states uh, to see if something is emerging. The United Kingdom has had a much more systematic approach to this. Uh, the US version now needs an upgrade. I think everybody recognizes that, and that's in the process of being put in place so that we have an early warning system if something starts to appear that should cause us concern, and we can quickly figure out just exactly how much of a significant development is that. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about trust in the vaccine. We've had this rollout among healthcare workers, and obviously there are some people clamoring for it, but there are a significant number, including some healthcare workers, who have been hesitant. Um, what's the NIH's role in doing this, and what's your role as a public figure, as well as director of the NIH, in uh, leading people towards trust in a vaccine which you have um, said has you know, shown to be safe and efficacious? You know, I'm really quite concerned about this. Uh, this has been an amazing experience over the last 12 months, uh, going from just learning about this virus to having not one but two vaccines that in very large scale rigorous trials, probably more rigorous than anything we've done before for a vaccine, have been shown to be safe and effective. And yet there is still a good deal of resistance in various groups about whether they would want to roll up their sleeves. 
I rolled up my sleeve as fast as I had the opportunity to do so. I've looked at the data, and frankly, the data is out there. It is in public. The FDA, their review process, was remarkably transparent. Every bit of the data on these uh, trials, on these two vaccines, was available for public scrutiny and then discussed in a day-long public meeting where all the points of view could be brought forward and public witnesses were invited to speak. So if people want to set aside all of the rumors they've heard, all of the social media things that are swirling around and say, okay, let's look at the facts here. I think they'd be incredibly reassured about these vaccines and how rigorously they have been tested. Could there be some long-term side effect that we haven't discovered yet? That's always possible with any new drug or any new vaccine. Uh, but based on everything we know now, that it would appear to be an extremely low likelihood. And when you consider that over 350,000 people have lost their lives uh, to this disease, and that we are here in January of 2021, probably in the worst month yet, and it's not over, the balance between benefits and risks, looking at the data, is so strongly in favor of accepting the vaccine that it is troubling, particularly with healthcare workers, uh, to see that there are people who go, nah, I don't think so, not for me. We somehow have to elevate the conversation about what the actual facts of the matter are, as opposed to somebody's opinion or some social media rumor that has gotten circulated. There's a lot of those. I just want to come back to one phrase, long, the possibility of some long-term side effect you mentioned in that answer. So is that a, a possibility you consider and are on the alert for and people should be aware of, or just something you're, um, you, you're mentioning as a, you know, a side, an aside? Of course, we need to watch for any of those things that happens whenever there is a new vaccine or a new drug. FDA has a system for capturing that information. Uh, certainly with other vaccines, there have been rare instances over long terms where a side effect appears in one in a million people or something like that. We can't in this instance say that couldn't happen because we haven't had enough experience to say that. We are following the people who took part in the trials and many of them were immunized back in August and September. And we're gonna follow them for two years uh, to see if there's anything that turns up and so far, it has been remarkably good in terms of the absence of unexpected side effects. So looking at the balance, again, trying to be absolutely clear here that I can't tell you with 100% certainty that there's not some rare event that we haven't discovered yet. Right now, the balance is so strongly in favor of the benefits for these vaccines as compared to the risk. You're also a man of faith and um many churches have continued to meet in person others have gone online um, during this very difficult period what do you see your role as there in persuading people or talking to people about the risks of congregating every week or more often than that to worship yeah i have been uh, reaching out as much as i can and, and accepting invitations from leaders in the church to talk about this the church has a critical role to play right now in terms of reaching out in the midst of all this tragedy and economic distress uh, to try to help people who are going through very tough times uh, with grief and suffering and perhaps food insecurity and everything else. And many churches have really risen to that task, but they are frustrated about the inability to gather together, which is what churches really love to do and where a lot of that fellowship uh, builds its strength. At the same time, at this present time, to gather indoors in a circumstance where the virus is in the community 
is just far too great a risk uh, to be able to take on for people who really care about loving your neighbor. So I've done a lot of consulting about that and tried to encourage the leaders in the church to speak out about the importance of following public health measures and also about trusting science in this situation. Uh, church and science haven't always had the easiest relationship. In my perspective as a scientist and a person of faith, that's really too bad because there's such a lot that can be learned by understanding each other and, uh, and perceiving the harmony between the spiritual and the scientific worldviews, as long as you're careful about where you're applying which one. And yet, sometimes that hasn't been the case. And I think some people in the church, therefore, are skeptical about a scientific claim and need to be convinced that this is actually something that's good for them and is not somehow treading on their faith. Uh, here we are today. It's the Feast of the Epiphany. I know that an awful lot of people, particularly in the Greek Orthodox Church, see this as a moment where they really want to get together. And yet, at the same time, right now, if you care about your friends, your neighbors, your grandparents, all of those vulnerable people, I don't think you are called to get together. I think you're called to stay apart, try to protect each other, try to get through this, try to follow all of those expectations as people of faith uh, to reach out uh, in a way that saves lives and promotes healing. Let me throw another element into science, religion, and politics this time around. I don't think we've seen a, um, a, a, an illness, a, a pandemic like this, that has been as highly politicized as this one. You are, as you said, um, Dr. Tony Fauci's boss. Um, you told me that you speak to him every day. Is that correct to get your, your message straight? Yep, um, Tony and I have been absolutely linked together on a daily basis for the last year. We talk almost every evening to see what's happened that day and what kind of messages need to be put forward and what's happened with the science. And it's an incredible gift uh, to have Dr. Fauci as our leader of the infectious disease a research part of NIH. He's probably the most highly respected infectious disease expert in the world and a wonderful public communicator. So I'm really delighted to have him on my team. And I wanna do everything we can to try to support the vision that, that he has. But yeah, it has been a tumultuous year and politics has not helped. <laughs> I'm not a political person. I was appointed by President Obama and then held over by President Trump. The last thing that I ever wanna do is to start mixing politics with science, but it sure has gotten out there in terms of the ways in which this particular uh, pandemic uh, has been perceived by the public. The idea that mask wearing would become a political statement uh, or that seen somehow as an invasion of your personal freedom, I wouldn't have imagined that really as possible, but boy, it sure came to pass. I mean, a mask is actually nothing more. Here's mine. I will uh, wear it as soon as I go out of the house today. Uh, is nothing more than a life-saving medical device. We should think of it in that regard and not add all this other baggage to it. And yet that has happened in our incredibly divisive political environment of 2020, which seems to um, have colored over almost everything. So were you ever pressured by the White House to change Dr. Fauci's message on masks or anything else? Um, I think the White House is, as all White Houses have been, uh, very interested in having some say about who shows up and talks to which particular media representative. That applies uh, to me as well. And I know there are times uh, where they have not wished uh, for me or for Dr. Fauci to accept a current invitation. I get that. That was true under Obama as well. 
I don't think Tony Fauci is somebody who would agree uh, to have a message handed to him. He's going to give the message that he believes is true and that the public needs to hear. And that's why he has been such an effective voice uh, during these difficult times. And what would you have done if the White House had asked you to fire Dr. Fauci? <laughs> I would have said, I cannot do that. <laughs> I, I, why would I even consider uh, firing somebody who is such an incredibly important, critical, smart, capable, highly respected leader in infectious disease in the midst of a pandemic? I would not be able to do that. Were you ever put under pressure to do so? I was not. Right. So the, the NIH has spent something like 12 million on a SEAL program to try and get the message out about um, how to, to encourage communities of color to join up. It's a pittance compared to the billions spent on vaccine development. How do you propose reaching communities of color? I'm glad you're raising this because I do think this is a really important issue. Communities of color have not always been well served uh, by medical research, going back to Tuskegee, which left a long imprint of a terrible memory in the hearts and minds uh, of many African-Americans. And so there's a natural distrust when somebody says, hey, we've got something for you uh, to really ask the question, is this really going to be good for me or am I being utilized in some way as a guinea pig? We've heard lots of those things. I worked really hard with the companies running the vaccine trials uh, to try to make sure that those trials enrolled participants that were diverse. And if you look at that, how that played out with Pfizer, Moderna, uh, with J&J &J that's uh, just finished their enrollment, AstraZeneca, uh, they've all done pretty well uh, to actually get diversity into the trial. So you can look at them and say, yeah, there's a person like me in that trial. It's not just about a bunch of young white people. Uh, so we've worked hard at that perspective. SEAL that you mentioned, which stands for Community, Community Engagement Alliance, was an effort at NIH to try to take a lot of the community engagement efforts we've had in other research projects like hypertension or diabetes and see whether we could build on those uh, to further enhance the empowerment of communities of color to have some charge of their own destiny here and to be able to provide them with resources to improve the chances of people taking part in research and also address the question of vaccine hesitancy. It's a modest amount of uh, funding, but that's a small part of our overall efforts when it comes to research and health disparities, which is billions of dollars uh, of the NIH budget. We have a ways to go here. Let's be clear. We are not in a country uh, where uh, health equities are, are evenly distributed. We have inequities, and that is playing out in a very troubling way in the way that COVID-19 has hit particular communities really hard. All the more reason why we want those communities to be able to embrace what could be a solution to this and not feel that it's something that might be something to distrust. A lot of work to do there. Frankly, what we most need is voices from those communities who are trusted to step in and speak out about the facts. A white guy like me from the government is probably not going to be the person to convince a reluctant individual to roll up their sleeve. But if their African-American or Hispanic doctor speaks about it, or their elected congressional representative, or their pastor, that makes a difference. And we're trying to provide all of those voices with the materials they need to be effective. We're running out of time, which I'm very sorry about, but I do want to finish up with one question, and I'm afraid it has to be a, a briefish answer. But you were also, you led the Human Genome Project. Um, 
looking at your career and that um, enormous project, where do you see that taking us in the future? Wow, I could go on for a long time, but I know we only have a <laughs> <I> minute. <laughs> uh, this has been uh, a one of those transformative moments in human history, uh, reading our own instruction book. I think it will go down over the centuries as one of those moments like going to the moon or splitting the atom, but maybe even more significant because it's about ourselves and our medical circumstances. Genomics has already completely transformed the way we think about cancer. It's having a lot to do with the basic science in almost every way. Its full impact on clinical medicine probably still lies a bit ahead in terms of each of us having access to our own genome information and being able to practice better prevention, for instance, but that is coming. So yeah, watch this space over the next few decades. I think genomics will end up being right in the center of a lot of the advances that we make, both in terms of prevention of disease and treatment of illness. And Dr. Francis Collins, thank you so much for joining me today. I left many questions unasked, so I hope we'll have you back on the show. But thank you so much for so many insightful comments today. Oh, thank you very much, and I'll be glad to come back anytime. Good. We'll make we'll we'll try to do that. And audience, please be back with us at 11 a.m. when my colleague Michael Duffy will be interviewing former Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker and also defense sec, former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. That's at 11 a.m. So stay with us. And thank you very much for joining us today with Dr. Francis Collins of the NIH. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.